1: feel like we should get up and dance in our Marco Rubio boots. Um, all right, so there's no intro today. I'll tell you, this is actually why there is no intro. It's because to get ready for the show, we had to watch 10 hours of Making a Murderer, and I, that just ate up all the time that I would ordinarily put into writing an intro. So this is when I thought, no, this is just my life now. I'm sitting down in the downstairs in front of the TV... With a bunch of people from Eastern Wisconsin trying to get through this, so that's what we're going to be talking about today. First of all, let me tell you who's going to be talking about that today. Uh, Carolyn Payne is with us. She is a comedian, actress, blogger, writer, dancer, preso- presario dancer, and that's about it. She had a really bad cold right after Christmas, so she watched all of making a murderer with very little contact with the outside world. So uh, she's our most immersive person <laughs> probably here. Uh, Rebecca Castellani, however, probably has her doctrine in eastern Wisconsin studies by now. I've noticed like the little annotations you're making even of the document there. You really uh, – I
0: got real deep into you, this. You got, yeah. you got
1: granular on this. Yeah. All right. So uh, – and uh, Tracy Wu Fastenberg who uh, – because she has uh, small children cannot go anywhere but um, – <laughs> The Truth. <laughs> Truth so, uh, so it was easy to bully you into doing this anyway, relatively easy. It took a minimum amount of bullying. So, uh, for the people who don't know, uh, what is making a murder? First of all, we're going to try not to spoil things for you, although <clears throat> it sort of depends on what you consider a spoiler. I mean, it's, kinda, it's m- more, this is a story that's more in the details than it is anything else. It took 10 years to make, uh, it was released on December 18th on Netflix. Uh, If you don't have Netflix, that's one of the reasons you haven't seen it. It's the work of two filmmakers, Laura Ricciardi and Moira Demas. Uh, And what is it? Well, it's a story of the legal troubles of Stephen Avery, uh, the part owner of an auto salvage yard who in 2003 was freed after 18 years in prison when DNA evidence cleared him from a 1985 sexual assault. He later sued Manitowoc, Manitowoc I, I, they say it two different ways on this series, but Manitowoc County, Wisconsin, uh, for $36 million. Some of that might have had to been paid by the individual prosecuting uh, and policing officials themselves. But in 2005, shortly after several county officials had been deposed over their handling of evidence in this rape case, Mr. Avery was abruptly accused again. This time he was charged with the murder of Teresa Halbach, a 25-year-old photographer who had visited his property to take pictures uh, of a vehicle for Auto Trader magazine. This case would also eventually uh, swallow up uh, his 16-year-old nephew. Um, so um, and, and so basically to watch this thing, it is it is a little bit in the manner and the tradition of serial. Um, also, if you've seen any of the so-called Paradise Lost movies about the West Memphis Three, uh, uh, it's, it's similar to those. Um, got a little bit of jinx in it. And then the, fictionally, it does have a little bit of the aesthetic feel of Fargo. So man, uh, squash all those things together and you kind of have this. Um, although, Carolyn, maybe I'll start with you. I mean, this, this is this is a series which occasionally tries our patience and sometimes feels as though it's getting awfully long. We're spending an awful lot of time with this. But people do it. And what do you think the propulsion is, besides the fact that you had no place to go because you were sick? Like, why did you watch this for 10 hours?
2: I, I think, it, like any good mystery, it just kind of sucks you in. And you you want some sort of resolution with this. Uh and and I mean I, I guess we're trying not to give spoilers, but there it it builds to this every detail that comes in, you feel like we're gonna get somewhere with this, so you just keep watching and the the details that are coming in just i i mean the the rage level that you get with this, and I know that that's something that everyone feels like I was just so out of control, angry <laughs> watching this i I had to drink to calm down. <laughs> <laughs>
3: That must have helped the cold a lot, too. It too. did,
2: actually. I d- it did. And and this, it was, for me, a very consuming experience where, you know, like Colin said, I, I had been quite sick with a bad cold and I just randomly Netflix, this, you know, had come on to Netflix, it suggested it, and I was like, sure, why not? I'm sick of sappy Christmas stuff, I'll give it a whirl, and uh, you know, five hours later, I was like, oh my god, I have not <laughs> moved right. in hours. What happened
1: to <laughs> my life? Alright, by the way, as we go along here, if you have been watching it too, you have your own theories, your own thoughts. Our number is 860 or maybe you just deplore the fact that this kind of thing has turned into a form of, let's face it, entertainment. Eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. and please do feel free to tweet us at W N P R, Colin. So Rebecca, I said in an email to all of you guys, I feel like this is about a lot of different things, and certainly it is about the thing that Carolyn just said—the frustration that we feel because the criminal justice system, whatever else you decide about this, whether you decide Stephen Avery is guilty or not, the criminal justice system is not functioning the way it's supposed to, and it really seems like aggressively, in some cases, not only is it simply not functioning, but it's intentionally being warped and twisted out of its proper shape. So that's certainly one of the things that hooks us—is that. The thing that hooks us?
0: I'm not sure. I think that the story was initially what got me into it, and I got into it a little later than most of my friends. They were all talking about it, so I decided I was going to binge watch it and did some pre reading and was very fascinated by the case. Um, But I think that the thing that came out of it for me is definitely this question of the justice system. I actually asked five of my friends this morning, I said, I have a simple question Do you have faith in our justice system? And every single one of them was a resounding, expletive filled no. And that is really sad and depressing and stressful for me, that we are living in a state where the vast majority of people do not have faith in our justice system. And this is just a perfect example of the many, many ways in which it can fail People and you know, I definitely this is Stephen Avery's case predominantly. But what I was struck by most was the injustice done to Brendan Dassey, and I walked away feeling worse about that really than I did about the Stephen Avery case.
1: Brendan Dassey is his 16 year old um, nephew who is um, has learning disabilities and pretty obviously a lot of difficulty comprehending the uh, trouble he's in after what appears to be a coerced and highly man- manipulated confession from him uh, in which he confesses to very sordid details connected uh, to this murder. He asks uh, when he can go back to school because he has to be back at 109 for a sixth period because he has a project due or something. I mean, kind of an indication that um, he doesn't understand what he's just done uh, or the enormity of what he's involved in. He's not uh, assisted or represented by uh, anybody in those moments. Uh, At another point, he talks about how he would like to get out in time to see WrestleMania, you know this is sort of like an indication in anyway that he doesn't understand exactly where he is. And you know, um, Tracy, it does seem as though some of that has to do with uh, Brendan Dassey's own impairments. But I think there's also a sense that this family of people—they're not us. This the Avery family. They that we are seeing. I, I think at one point Stephen Avery himself says this is the way justice goes for the poor, right? The poor mm-hmm. don't get the same justice that we do. That we're seeing people who don't necessarily have the same resources or even comprehension of the system that we have.
3: Absolutely. And actually, while I was watching it, I was sort of struck by the fact that, you know, this is a poor white family. Mm-hmm. You know, as lately we've been drawn into a lot of miscarriage of justice for disadvantaged youth males of non-white backgrounds. Uh, and so this was really interesting for me to watch, to, to watch the whole process for this, that, you know, it doesn't matter what race, what color, what age you are, it could happen to anyone in any circumstance. Mm-hmm. And there is a, a bit of voyeurism, I think, as we we see the visuals of this junkyard and the way this family lives and how they interact. And, you know, their appearance is just not what, you know, as maybe middle class Americans you're used to seeing. So, it's still sort of an us and them type of thing. There's still a bit of a wall and it takes almost several hours for you to sort of relate that, oh my gosh, this could happen to me. This could happen to somebody I know. it's, It's a bit of that process while you're going through it too. One of the things that really stood out for me
0: was when one of the defense attorneys, Jerry Buting, says, you know, we can all say, Beyond doubt that we'll never commit a crime, but we can't say that we wouldn't be accused of a crime. And that really struck me like this could Mm -hmm. really happen to anyone. And, yes, it helps if you're educated and are of a higher class than these people. But it could happen to anyone. Any of us could be accused of a crime like this. It's just amazing.
1: Um, Let's talk a little bit about the aesthetics of this, Um, Carolyn. In some ways – Um, they've done a remarkable thing without very much to work with. Um, We really do see an awful lot of helicopter shots panning the same neighborhood uh, over and over again. The neighborhood's got a little more snow on it or a little not so much. There's an awful lot of B-roll of this junkyard, this uh, salvage yard that the Averys have – Car, rusty cars, junk cars, tilted cars, cars halfway covered in snow. <laughs> you know, and and part of it is, and so there's and there's a lot of voice stuff going on over that. A lot of it is a, so a lot of the, some of the scratchy prison phone calls that we're very familiar with now from Serial. But it, you know, in in a way, it's amazing that they hold our attention this well because they don't visually really have a tremendous amount to work with.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, truth be told, the first, you know, when I first started the the series. You're, you are kind of struck by that. There isn't a lot that's going to draw you in, and that really is credit to the filmmakers who took something where they're creating a story that they don't really have visuals for. But the visuals that you do have, the thing that struck me when I... the normally I'm one of those people who when I watch something I, I go into like a whole Google, I, I just start mm-hmm. digging yes. and I want more information <laughs> and this I was just so captivated I didn't do the Googling until after I didn't hit <laughs> I didn't hit Reddit until I had all the information yeah. but for, for me one of the things that I did have to Google was I was like wait when was this filmed because it seems so bizarre to me that there was like this time warp where these people are still living with you know 70s mustaches and and mullets. Mullets and, and the feathered hair. Mm-hmm. And so I, I it, that to me was a really jarring part of the visual was that this is within the past decade. And they there there's this whole climate there that is in a totally different decade than when the past one I was just in. So that was interesting to me to see.
1: Yeah, I thought one of the real visuals of this was – this almost painterly interest in the faces of these people. These people often have sort of f- flat and occasionally acne-ravaged faces that, and they just seem not terribly interested in cosmetics and stuff like that. But you get these really American looks on people, right? I mean, and the camera will hold it. There's a, uh, I think it's an episode nine. There's a shot where Brendan Nessie's mother is just sitting there. She's holding a cigarette and she's got her hands to her face because something's gone very poorly in the trial. She doesn't say anything. I don't think there's a word that she says in that clip. They just hold on her for about 70 seconds and then, and then just cut away. But her face is telling this huge story. I mean these are faces that kind of don't they're, – they're not Jennifer Lawrence. They're not people you see on television. We're getting to Jennifer Lawrence later, so that's I mentioned that. Um, all right, let's play a little clip just so people don't feel completely estranged from it. If you haven't uh, seen or heard any of the series here, at least is a little bit of what it sounds like. Law enforcement despised Stephen Avery. Stephen Avery was a shiny example of their inadequacies, their misconduct. No one ever intended to do anybody any harm by this. Uh, uh, we firmly believed that we had the uh, guilty
4: party at the time. Welcome
5: home. This was one of the biggest miscarriages of justice I ever saw in 20 years of criminal defense work and thousands of cases. It was like the same old Steve was back. He was happy, he was smiling. I did tell him, be careful. There was just something I felt I said, when I talk Tony's not done with you they're not even close to being finished with you.
1: So that's, and by the way, that's the thrilling soundtrack, too. I mean, there's a lot, not a lot of bells and whistles in this thing. I mean, um, Rebecca was saying before the show that it's sort of like the poor man's Game of Thrones is the actually opening theme. <laughs> and even the, even the name is not a good name. Nobody could have possibly focused uh, – because I can never remember the name, whether it is to make a – murder, no, it's making a murder. Uh, nothing about this really sort of strikes you as having really been thought through at the level of commerciality or production just by the fact that it has become – uh, incredibly commercial, um, I want to talk a little bit about one of the things that I think something like this needs is a cast. You know I mean, it naturally will have a cast, but uh, you have uh, people who are not inherently heroic. You have some people who are seem inherently villainous. We can talk about them as we go along. They mostly seem like the people who are supposed to be enforcing the law and prosecuting things, although there's some really st- strong indications that maybe Steve Avery himself is a kind of villain uh, but um but, Rebecca, there's heroes, too. Uh, and so I think we, we have to talk about Dean. So at a certain Dean. point, Steve Avery gets two lawyers. He actually is able to mortgage a certain amount of money that he's got paradoxically as a result of a settlement from his first case of false imprisonment to be able to hire good enough lawyers to fight this case that he's got now. So enter, enter somebody who is a little easier on the eyes and seems to embody something that we want. He's sort of like a short Atticus Finch, right?
0: Yes, I am a self-confessed stranger, as the internet has dubbed the... There's a name no. for this. Oh, oh, yes. No. There's oh, a ha- yes. Hash- hashtag. Stranger. Hashtag strangers, and I am a stranger. Um, I don't know if it's just... I mean, it's definitely an amalgamation of a lot of things, including his his cute little wardrobe and his just deep desire for justice. And, you know, in a cast of characters that includes people like Ken Kratz, who is the prosecutor and has one of the worst voices I have ever oh, heard. No,
3: he's awful. Just the
0: worst. There's
3: Everything about him is awful. Just absolutely
0: offensive. And I, Len Kaczynski's not much better. Length. There's just so many villains. And even, you know, Steve Stephen Avery I have my fair share of issues with. Um, so in comes Dean Strang and Jerry Buting, these lawyers that are just, you know, really trying to see justice served when the rest of it seems, you know, they're, they're such a presumption of guilt instead of a presumption of innocence. And I think that they're really there to remind us that you know this is the justice system at its worst.
1: Right. In in the uh, words of Dean Strang, uh, all due respect to counsel, the state is supposed to start every criminal trial swimming upstream. And the strong current against which the state is supposed to be swimming is the presumption of innocence. And then he goes on to say, but that's not the case this time. And to me... Tracy, you know, I mean, I think uh, people talked about just – Carolyn talked about just watching it and getting angry, getting frustrated. And to me – one of the sources of frustration was almost this kind of level of entitlement that the prosecutorial side felt. And, and, in, and this kind of sense that, I mean, at a certain point, and this is not a spoiler, I, I don't think at a certain point, the defense strategy is to suggest that some of the evidence against Steve Avery in this uh, murder has been planted by somebody and probably that somebody is law enforcement, and they begin building a pretty persuasive argument that some of this evidence has been tampered with and has been planted. And, and you get these these speeches made by prosecuting attorneys saying, well, this is really horrible because these policemen are such wonderful people and they have families and their reputations are being besmirched and something's got to be done about this, as though they were the people whose freedom was on trial at that moment.
3: You know, you talk about the sense of entitlement on that side. It was indulged, though, also. I mean, it's it was. Um, rewarded. The judge, the judge was clearly on their side on so many levels, even, you know, when he was during the sentencing, you know, he was speaking almost like a prosecutor in, in his condemnation um, and, and, you know, down the line again and again. So it's very clear as to where this sense of entitlement and this attitude of, well, we can do whatever, you know, well, of course, you know, the way we handled this evidence may not have been perfect, but, you know, you got to bend the protocols every now and then, you know, that type of attitude, there was nothing to stop them from having that, um, by the way, as I yeah. say,
1: we'd be happy to hear from you, eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. 275 Kyron Wolf, who has not seen this, may chime in with a question or two uh, just to make sure those of you who are out there trying to figure out what it is that we're talking about, and we're talking about making a murderer, the 10-part Netflix series on a true crime case in eastern Wisconsin, uh, just to make sure that uh, questions get answered and we don't assume too much. One thing I'll maybe ask the panel, I mean, maybe some of you have already said them, but I think everybody who watches this has this kind of moments at some point where it's like, oh, no, 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 <laughs> no. And it's just, even listening to you talk, you know, you say judge, uh, Tracy, and the other two go, the judge.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. It's like...
3: <laughs> I had to rewind so many times yep. because I thought I... Miswatched something. Yep, yeah. You know, like, no, 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 no. That's not what happened. You know, when when his first, uh, Brendan's first defense uh, oh, attorney Kaczynski. came in <laughs> and did some of the things that he did, I thought his motive was completely different. I thought it was in the vein of trying to prove how malleable Brendan was. And then when the truth came out, it was sort of like, are, are you kidding me? Wait, wait, <laughs> I have to rewind that again. I actually I am Teresa Kramer, another noser, saying, wait a second. She said, no, no, no. No, you're right. You're right. Because it was just so absolutely unbelievable. And that happened four or five times.
5: Hey, this is Kayon. May I ask? uh, I I was raised by a prosecutor and I only recently found out that prosecutors can choose whether or not they try a case, uh, whereas defense attorneys are hired and they have to defend their clients no matter what. So since I haven't seen one episode of this and you guys, you've all seen everything, right? Yeah. Okay. Somebody get Kiona cold. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um, But I'm I'm wondering what what do we think the motive is for the prosecutors to have tried this case and, and done it? Like, why? Why did it go down like this? Do we ever get answers? Good old well, boys club. Yeah.
1: I mean, there, there's certainly I mean, the, the implication of this is that that the first of all, this county uh, and, and the people who work in this county, uh, the people who work in law enforcement, the people who work in prosecution, they are facing a potential thirty six million dollar suit from Stephen Avery. I mean, that's sort of that's an arbitrary number and I'm sure he not, would not have won thirty six million dollars, but they're facing a multimillion dollar lawsuit from this previous case. Um, and so they have a tremendous incentive to get rid of this guy, uh, mm-hmm. to make him a non-factor in their lives. And then it's suggested in the narration of this. Although I sh- we should say that there's no actual narrator in this. This is one of the main- – not only does it not have a Sarah Koenig constantly sort of doubting itself and asking questions uh, about its own perspective, but there's, there's no narrator. There's no voiceover. Everything is just done with actual footage and things are being explained. But anyway, one of the things that is explained is that um, the insurance that is ordinarily carried for these criminal justice officials may not apply in this lawsuit that they themselves might have to be paying out of pocket. If a declaratory judgment, including putative damages, were won against them, that they might have to pay some of it. So you can imagine why prosecutors, sheriffs, uh, and, and police would be really, really interested. I mean, so that's one, – one of the suggestions here is – that um, that that's the reason although I would sort of question I don't know the premise I mean prosecutors have to prosecute crimes if they feel as though those crimes do rise to that level I mean that's not uh, necessarily a system where they have a tremendous amount of discretion
3: Um, I I think that's part of the ethical obligation yeah ethical right
0: one of the biggest miscarriages of justice for me watching it was that they took efforts to move this trial to Calumet County, which is a neighboring county. So there wasn't a conflict of interest because the suit was ongoing. And yet they still had Manitowoc police officers involved
2: in the investigation. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and that
0: is just, if you're being sued by someone, you have to be so far removed from that. And here these guys were. On the ground, and they said, "Oh, we had Calumet officers babysitting them." And at one point, they asked, it, have you ever had to babysit officers before from another county?" And the guy said, "No, this is a first for me." And it just <laughs> was astounding that didn't. I mean, it shouldn't have even been tried, in my opinion, in Wisconsin. They should have tried it in Chicago or somewhere else. I mean, it just blew my mind how wrought this was with failures.
1: Um, Teresa, probably our own Teresa, tweets, do we need to turn these kinds of cases into, quote, entertainment, unquote, to get them the attention slash justice they deserve? And, I mean, I think that's a really interesting question. I mean, I think it's a sad state of affairs when that's how you get justice. But that may be how you get justice.
2: I think it's one way to get justice uh in in cases like this it, attention is what I mean they they got that petition signed on yeah. White mm-hmm. House the White House website within a matter of days and uh I think that we do things like this would go under our radar here I mean, we wouldn't be
3: talking about it unless it necessarily unless it was part of our, our Right. It doesn't.
2: It maybe it doesn't. Every trial doesn't need a Netflix documentary, but they, you know, it needs to be looked at. It needs to be as unglamorous as this one.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you do need to show the unglamour
2: of it all is what made it so uh, enticing. Yep. And what continued to
0: just really bug me was how many other cases are there out there like this that we we don't Mm -hmm. know about because they're not Netflix series? I mean, I felt the same way listening to the first season of Serial. It's like, you know, how many Mm -hmm. young people are serving time for a crime they may or may not have committed and we just don't know and don't care because it's not being put in front of us. It's not in vogue. It's not trending on Twitter
2: I went into this thinking I had a pretty good understanding of the American justice system due to my obsession with Law and Order, <laughs>
5: <laughs> and your appearances, yeah, obviously,
2: and my one-time appearance on that show. My dead body, a um, pink guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my one-time appearance that didn't end well. But um, I, I thought, like I, I, I kind of. Th- thought that every every case had had a Benson and Stabler investigating <laughs> it and really getting to the heart of it and going, you know, go, working with the victim and making sure that they were doing the right thing. And that was one of the shocking things. I was like, this is not like law and order. Where, <laughs> where are those people from law and order that would never let this happen in my mind? And so I think that that was a big part of the rage for me was that, yes, this is happening and this is what the American justice, justice system really is. let well,
1: Let's grab a quick call here. Hold your thought, uh, Tracy Wu, Fastenberg, and here's JP in East Hartford. Hi, JP. Hey, Colin. How are you? Just fine.
4: Hey, I, I just wanted to invoke. I, I was a huge fan of Making a Murderer, and I read a lot of stuff online, and I see the comparisons to Serial and uh, The Jinx. Um, but what I wasn't seeing was a lot of comparisons to the 1996 documentary on HBO called Paradise Lost, mm-hmm. the uh, the story of the West Memphis Three and the the child murders at Robin <clears throat> excuse me, the child murders. Robin Hood Hills, and how how that documentary, if anyone likes Making Murderer, they should definitely see Paradise Lost, because the parallels are uncanny, but um, what your your panel was talking about, how how many other cases of injustice like this are out there, well this was one, I was young when I saw it for the first time and it absolutely blew my mind that these kind of things were going on Um, the idea was there was a satanic panic, and the the people needed a, a villain, and so they accused these three teenagers of killing and mutilating these three third grade boys. Um, and it was one of those swimming upstream. They were already considered guilty. Um, no one was, didn't really want to hear them. They were kind of outsiders. Um, and I, I don't want to blow the ending for anyone who's interested in seeing it, but... Um,
1: it's they really These are three really good documentaries. I have seen them. They're in, incredibly compelling. I think they're made better, actually, than The Making of a Murder. They really are very, very interesting. And But it's another example of what we're saying. I mean, if if celebrities get interested, if you know, like you know, this is really important because Metallica actually licensed its music for, <laughs> for Paradise Lost. So, and you know, they don't do that. So, so we know these things. I have a couple of quick questions I want to ask you guys before we um, run out, run out of time. One of them is, um, and and Tracy, I, since you and I were hitting back off the furthest back tees. We may not have had as much time to catch up. But Rebecca, I know you've sort of looked into there are some counter narrative arguments too, right? There's if you get on the reddits, if you get on uh, even just articles done by The Washington Post and, and The New York Times, there are arguments made that this you know, Instead of being Sarah Koenig constantly questioning and reevaluating and can I believe this person, can I not believe this person, person, the filmmakers don't really tell you what choices they're making. And there there is an argument being made that some of the choices that they make exclude other kinds of evidence that maybe is a little bit more damning uh, and less sympathetic to Stephen Avery. I mean, did that affect your perception of this at all?
0: Yeah, I went deep down the Reddit hole um, <laughs> in this. And I also, you know, did acknowledge the fact that there are pieces of evidence that are excluded, and that does, you know, hinder the credibility of this for me slightly um the things that were left out i don't want to spoil it for anyone but there are certain things that can go either way for me Mm -hmm. um but should have been brought up i think i I don't think that you can have a 10-part series and you know they the last episode follows up with the families after you can't go into all that detail and not kind of acknowledge the strikes against him because it does seem so ridiculous that he's convicted in the end and then you hear a couple more pieces of evidence they excluded and you think well maybe it's slightly more plausible Uh, Again, I go back to Brendan Dassey every time, though. There's nothing – there's no physical evidence of him anywhere. And the fact that he was convicted and the fact that he had a retrial and that was overthrown just boggles my mind. I mean, this kid is going to be in jail until 2048, no possibility of parole, and it just –
2: he was the biggest source of rage for me. So much rage. In this.
0: My boyfriend kept hearing me like make these massive like Are you kidding me? I was just
2: so upset by
0: that. And I actually teared up when he was convicted because it just broke my heart. This is a kid that didn't know better and was absolutely taken advantage of and manipulated, and it just and was the victim
1: me. of kind of a Trojan horse strategy yeah? too, in right. the sense that uh, the people who were supposed to be representing him. I, we have to go to a break here, but I just do want to say I, the, my Are you kidding me? Moment or where I just was writhing around in distress. Uh, the attorney who's nominally representing him, brings in his own investigator. But this investigator appears to have no purpose whatsoever other than to extract another, even more damning yep. confession mm-hmm. from, awesome. uh, from this young man. So here's this young man of limited uh, abilities to begin with, and you watch. It's, it was This guy taped his work He's supposed to be in, reinvestigating this case to find exculpatory material instead he extracts in this grinding brutal manipulative way another confession, confession from this kid and then feeds him back to the the actual uh, government investigators. I, I, that, I, that was my point. Where I, yeah. I, I should was be like,
5: questioned without his attorney present. Right. Yeah. See, I, yeah. I, I, haven't, like, I haven't seen one episode, and I kind of don't want to now. This sounds <laughs> yeah. really stressful to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It Jeez. is stressful.
1: All right, so we're gonna take a break. We'll come back. There'll be more after this. All right, well, that's all we're going to say about Making a Murderer. It's your duty as an American to watch all 10 hours (laughs) and to develop your own feelings for Dean Strang, although you're then going to have to get in line behind his wife and Rebecca Castellani and a whole (laughs) bunch of other people. He's a hashtag now, like just crushing on him is a hashtag. Uh, All right, so Rebecca Castellani is one of our panelists today, also with Tracy Wu Fastenberg uh, from the Mark Twain House, uh, Carolyn Payne from the vast Carolyn Payne Entertainment Empire. (laughs) Um, And so we're going to switch gears here. I'm trying to think of a connection. There isn't one. Uh, there, may, there might be a connection to one of the things we do, depending on how much time we have here. Um, but, in fact, one of the other things people got excited about, got hashtaggy about uh, this week, uh, were the boots of Marco Rubio. Uh, Rebecca Castellani has worn her Marco Rubio boots today. Uh, and so these are – I don't know. I'm not good with shoes or boots. Or somebody else like describe the boots.
2: They're shiny, black-heeled leather boots that kind of—they they sort of have like a— There's that, like, like a Western... half-inch heel on them. That's not a heel. Okay, they're a little <laughs> bit heeled for a man, For a man, though. I if anybody How tall—well, my question is, I, I meant to Google this. How tall is Marco Rubio? Does anyway, anyone know? Yeah. Is he one of those guys who feels like he needs to a add lift. a little lift? Somebody just, a Tom somebody, somebody
1: tweet that into us, please, at WNPR Collins. <laughs> <laughs> How I, tall is Marco Rubio? Yeah,
2: I mean, I do know, like, some guys who will wear lifts in their shoes or, like, shoes that, you know, like that George Costanza on Seinfeld wearing his Timberlands because they give him an inch or yeah. so. So I was wondering, you know, maybe so it's wait, that.
3: back up a second. Uh-huh. So Timberlands, which are pretty manly boots— to, to have like a little heel on them, a little lift. That's not a problem. Okay, it's
5: not like this heel is like a taper. Wait a minute, guys. Wait a minute, guys. Heel. I've got it. When you search height of Marco Rubio in Google, mm-hmm. it auto fills 5'10, and then it brings up the height of all the other people. Donald Trump, guess how tall? He's he's, he's tall. Pretty tall. He's tall. Tall. six, six tall. Two. Yeah. Whoa! Oh, wow. Right. Ben Carson uh, is six. Jeb Bush is six three. Carly Fiorina is five six. Of course, they're only showing me the Republicans. But well, so yes.
3: but, well, Trump's two five is there or his hair? Five yes. ten. <laughs> yeah. Good five one. Five ten is not
2: that you know it's not at that tall compared to it, some of the other candidates. So I can understand. I mean, I'm I'm five foot three and and I like having a little extra height. I know. You know, Tracy, <laughs> five feet, flat. Well,
1: so on Morning Joe, Joe Scarborough called the footwear shagalicious. I'm not quite sure oh, what Joe's trying to tell us there, but he's except that he's an idiot. Um, <laughs> Don't hold that Van- Vanity Fair played a guess the brand and cost game New York magazines. The Cut compared Mr. Rubio to Harry Styles, the yep. One Direction heartthrob. I'm not quite sure I get that either, but uh, the Daily Mail twinned him with former President Nicolas uh, Sarkozy of France, a noted clothes horse and also somewhat short, as I recall. But um, I mean, to me, one of the things that's going on here is they're really talking about how incredibly, with the exception of people like Carly Fiorina, how incredibly uniform the style is. For if you're running for president, you have two choices, and they're both the same, right? <laughs> they're, they're both like a dark suit and a red tie, and I mean, that's it, right?
3: Pretty much, yeah.
1: Um, and, and so that how dare
3: he deviate? Yeah.
1: <laughs> I mean, really, if, if you're not wearing these the, the the stuff that you're supposed to wear, there's something odd and eccentric about you. And... I mean, these
2: boots kind of made me like him more. Yes.
0: Because... And I think it's intentional. I think that he's got someone who said, look, Marco Rubio, you're not doing so hot in the polls. Put on these boots and people are going to be talking about you. See, and I actually don't think are. that this
2: is that much of a conspiracy thing. I think he just liked these boots. <laughs> it doesn't boots. go as deep for you as I, making I think it is much more superficial than that. I think the dude just liked these shoes and was wearing them and got you know photographed in them and... You know, people now.
3: commented, and yeah, yeah. nobody ever comments on a male's clothing choices. You'll comment mm-hmm. on a female candidate's clothing choices. You know, pantsuits, and do you bring a hairstylist well, with these you, were and whatnot? Yep. Yeah, but here's I, I the mean, thing: like, these it, are it, it shouldn't matter. <laughs> That that's my whole point is it shouldn't matter and it shouldn't be equated to being feminine or therefore weak or anything like that.
0: They're shoes. I think it's great that we're living in an age where I mean, it's great, we are talking about it and it is something mm-hmm. that is newsworthy, I guess. But, you know, this is the same week that Jaden Smith appeared in a woman's fashion spread. I mean, we are moving towards a frontier in fashion where the gender identities are more blurred and I think that's fantastic and good for Marco Rubio for being
1: a, a pioneer in a Republican field. I somehow <laughs> feel as though Marco Rubio would not want the sentence to end the way that you did. Yeah, no, I, right, I no, was no,
2: going to no, say, he, right now he and his people are freaking out <laughs> yeah, because that's yeah. not what they were going for <laughs> at all. That's course, a little it, too liberal for him.
1: <laughs> he kicked another tripwire. I mean, he had to prove or at least insist that these were from Florsheim because yeah, I mean, he has this whole other, one of his other narratives that he's struggling with is that he's not good at managing money. You got this $800,000 book advance. And blew it on speedboats and stuff like that, and uh, you know, so that's he certainly doesn't want anyone thinking these are eight hundred dollar boots, you know, which they very easily could be. And they, the they, yeah. yeah, they looked it. They looked
2: expensive. They looked nicer than anything I, I own.
1: <laughs> All right, so now we're going to go back to frozen Wisconsin um, for a different kind of story. Uh, these are more cheerful stories because I, one thing I can tell you is making a murder is bleak. So uh, <laughs> it is as bleak as things get. So. Um, the, um, so the, so it the, turns out the Green Bay Packers of Wisconsin uh, want to kiss you in the rain. Uh, <laughs> the Packers who play the Washington Redskins on Sunday in the NFC wildcard ma- uh, matchup have a whole bunch of players who have very unusual uh, movie tastes for football players. Uh, they like rom-coms. Uh, I love rom-coms, all of them. I'm a big rom-com guy, said guard Josh Sitton. How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days is a good one. The Devil Wears Prada is a great, great movie. Um, they have <laughs> They have big arguments. About 10 Things I Hate About You, a, uh, an older rom-com movie featuring Heath Ledger. Is it Julia Stiles who's in that one? Was mm-hmm. 10 Things name? I
0: Hate About You is uh, Matthew mm-hmm. McConaughey,
1: no, is. No, McConaughey. No, 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 oh,
3: no. That's, that's How to, to Lose a Girl you. in that 10 Days. days. Yeah. yeah, sorry. 10 no, Things
1: I Hate About You is Heath Ledger. Oh, I Ledger. love that movie,
3: yeah. And Julia, and it's, Stiles. It's Julia yeah. Stiles. Yeah, because yeah. it's based on Taming of the Shrew. Right. that's right. Oh, so yeah, that's David
1: Bakhtiari, who's a tackle, he likes that one. They're not so cool about that. And this all led to them actually making a little cameo in the sequel to Pitch Perfect, which is not exactly a rom-com, but has. It's a chick flick anyway. And so um, a bunch of the Packers, including their star linebacker, Clay Matthews, uh, actually made a little appearance uh, in the Riff battle uh, in Pitch Perfect 2. So does this? Does any of this make you like football players better? Okay. I'm going to yeah,
3: go uh, just go ahead here. I love Pitch Perfect. Yeah. I was really excited for Pitch Perfect 2. This is guilty pleasure mm. putting it all out there. I actually tried to use the Packers' involvement in Pitch Perfect 2 to convince my husband <laughs> to watch it with me. I lost terribly. Mm. But it actually – endeared them very very much to me because they didn't do a bad job and um, the fact that, you know, I happen to have read how they came about to be in the movie beforehand, mm-hmm. and that it was sort of them saying, yeah, we'll do it, we'll work really hard, you know, put us in the movie, please, 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 and I thought that was adorable, and I am not a football person, but I do like these gentlemen now.
1: Right. Somebody had been tweeting, this. they had been tweeting, the Packers Back had and been forth. tweeting yeah. about this, and somebody noticed the fact that they were doing this. So, I don't know, is there anything else to say about this, Rebecca?
0: I mean, I, I, unpopular opinion, do not like football or football players, I really, I don't understand anything about it, nor the appeal, but the idea of a bunch of Green Bay Packers sitting in the locker room trying to rehash scenes from Pitch Perfect and singing is very endearing. And I guess if I had to choose a team now, I would have to say the Green Bay Packers simply because that is just delightful. And they're redeeming Wisconsin
3: after yes, exactly, them
2: exactly. <laughs> Wisconsin's not all bad. Yeah, I I guess I <laughs> 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 that face. <laughs> I don't like rom coms. They're just ugh. Ick and somehow like a bunch of football players sitting around watching rom-coms just sound, it just sounds pathetic to me <laughs> I don't find it endearing I'm, I
3: just <sighs> well for one of them I think the article said it was because his mother wanted him to watch more wholesome things as opposed to you know like viol- it was David
1: yeah. Bactiari's yeah. mom
3: violent or, or see I don't know their names I'm sorry <laughs> I'm not a football person um, you know know, so numbers. that's what he, he <laughs> wound up watching with his mom was things that she liked and so I thought that was sort of cute how that sort of stuck with him yeah. Just say.
1: Well, You 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 wouldn't like want to watch Knights of Rodanthe with a couple of NFL players?
2: No, I'm all set.
1: <laughs> 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 you could have seen her face <coughs> when she said that. <clears throat> oh, that was great. Well, uh, actually, we're going to segue into one more uh, segment here, but as we do, just to make Tracy Woo-Fastenberg happy, let's hear a little bit of the Green Bay Packers, some of the Green Bay Packers in Pitch Perfect 2.
5: The whole club was looking
4: you handle this clay can you handle this I don't think they can handle this yes. I don't think you're ready for this jelly I don't think you're ready for this jelly I don't think you're ready for this cause my body so delicious for oh,
3: your pain I don't
1: think you're ready for this jelly for this to sort of put this in perspective these guys are all you know sort of in in the two hundred and seventy five to three hundred and twenty five <laughs> pound range these are enormous enormous guys who have a very ferocious job uh all right so anyway uh
3: (laughs) thank you for that i really appreciate it
1: yeah um, okay, Our, I don't even exactly know what this last topic... Who suggested this last topic? The gen- Where did it come from? So Je- Jennifer, Jennifer Lawrence. That was me. That was you. All right. So I'm going to have you set it up a little bit. I'll just sort of... I'll, I'll put in the bare bones of it. But So Jennifer, jo- Jennifer Lawrence, I'm sure you've heard of her. Glamour's February cover model is a modern-day fashion icon, a Christian Dior ambassador who's inspired multiple tribute blogs to fawn over her every earring and vest, who is her style muse, all that kind of stuff. Well, in an interview inside Glamour magazine, Uh, Editor-in-chief Cindy Levy uh, asked her, she said, how would you describe your style now? Uh, J-Law said, slutty power lesbian. That is literally what I say to a stylist, laughs. I don't know if that's offensive. Uh, And then there's a little bit more discussion about what that might mean. Glamour says that puts me in a tuxedo frame of mind, which I don't feel like I see you in. So what intrigued you about this?
3: It was the wording of it, you know, the choice of words. And then I had to go sort of find the visuals for this because I sort of had an idea what I think she meant by it. Um, But, you know, I I really liked Jennifer Lawrence at the the beginning. I think Rebecca and I were talking about how we found her sort of, you know, real and endearing and cute. And her sort of mishaps and kerfuffles and all of that were, hey, I would totally do that. I would probably say that. Um, I'd probably trip on stage, that type of thing. But now it seems like a bit of a trope of like, now I'm just going to say things that are sort of like, oh, but I'm me. It's OK if I say something that's slightly offensive and I don't know the right words type of thing. Um, I think she shows <laughs> a series of words there that probably sort of conveyed what she was looking for, but were probably the worst words you could possibly choose.
1: Anybody want to go next? Or did did that just completely cover? Was that a mic drop? (laughs) Yeah,
0: I mean, I don't know. J-Lo, why do you do this to me? Like, I really, really want to continue to like her. And the more that she plays this sort of, like, klutzy girl next door but will drink a six-pack of beer. I mean, I think she said in the same interview, my perfume is Cabernet because I smell like wine all the time. I mean, it's just getting a little old and... Tiresome for me. You know, here she's got the position of enormous influence and she's Mm -hmm. choosing kind of to deride herself in a way that is not particularly feminist for me. And it just is getting a little old. I you know, I Her movies, you know, Joy has been kind of panned, and I I just wish that she would use her platform for more than just tripping at the Emmys and
3: hanging out with Using the words, I don't know if that's
0: offensive.
3: Yeah. That That downplays her. That that downplays her. That's like saying no offense, offense, no offense. Right, and and, and it implies, well, well, I'm not that smart, which I think she probably is. Yeah. You know, and. Well,
2: if you took out, so she used three words to describe it, but if you took out, like, any one of those words, it's awful. Like, right. Does she want to dress with slutty power? Or is she a slutty lesbian? Or you know, lesbian power, lesbian <laughs> power. Exactly. Like it just, it, it's really, it that that's not something's off there. Right. And I think that it is that she just has worked so hard to cultivate this persona that is relatable. That, to me, it's off-putting. Yeah.
1: And but it's, it,
3: it doesn't it, bode well.
1: It does tie back a little tiny bit to um, Rebecca's summation of Marco Rubio, Rubio and his boots, that notion that we're in sort of a blurry fashion area these yeah. days where s- somebody who is the iconic leading lady of her moment, I mean, there's nobody more bankable right now yeah. than Jennifer Lawrence, that she would describe her personal style in that particular way suggests that our aesthetic is shifting right now. And people, I mean, she may be being kind of a disingenuous hyper-studied uh, and attempt to sound kind of spontaneous jerk, uh, as Tracy Wu Fastenberg suggests. But she's also probably talking about a little bit about what you're talking about, which is that the, the aesthetic choices aren't as clear as they could be, you know, or, or, or maybe as they have been.
0: Sure. I mean, I think we could maybe give her the benefit of the doubt that way, but I think that there is much more eloquent ways to say it. You know, if she said, I I prefer more (laughs) androgynous looks or more masculine looks because we're in this moment where that's okay and, you know, Jane Smith can wear a skirt to prom and no one bats an eye. I mean, if she had... You know, some backup of a cause. You know, I I want to dress this way so people don't think I'm hyper-feminine because I find myself a little more androgynous. Anything really would have been better than slutty power lesbian. It's just, yeah, I can't even say it out loud without cringing. It's tailored but revealing, you know, something something (laughs) better, you know. it just, it was bad word choice.
1: It's basically Tammy and transparent, but I may be the only one who's watched that series. All right, we have to take a break. We'll come back after this.
5: my new line of Bernie Sanders old guy shoes on Etsy. Today's show was produced by Colin McEnroe, Betsy Kaplan, and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Amanda Gallagher and Sarah Flaherty. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin and the part of Bill Curry was played by Aaron Rodgers. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Here and Now staff watching Love Actually with Cam Newton and Antonio Brown, visit our website wnpr.org Colin. On Monday's show, we're back with The Scramble, radio in real time. And now, back to Colin.
1: All right. It's time for endorsements. One of my projects for 2016 is to think of a different term besides endorsements, um, <laughs> mm-hmm. because I stole it from Slate Culture Gab Fest, and I'm out of communion with them right now. So anyway, uh, before we do endorsements, I do want to just tell you about an event, uh, and that is an event that's coming up on Wednesday. Uh, it's one of our freshly squeezed series at uh, Watkinson School. Uh, you're invited to come to it. Uh, it's in here in the bleak midwinter. We're going to give you some comedy. Uh, we're going to work with CT Improv. They're going We're going to have improvers there. We're also going to have uh, a playwright, a stand-up comedian, and Julia Pastel from C.T. Improv. We're going to talk about comedy in Connecticut, whether Connecticut is inherently funny or not. Uh, we're also – well, we'll just try to do, talk a little bit about the nature of comedy as well, comedy and humor. So if that sounds like fun, go to the Watkinson website, watkinson.org, and there's a little rectangle there for Freshly Squeezed. That's our series there. And click on that. And you can even come to a lovely buffet dinner beforehand. The tickets are really cheap. Uh, but we do need you to reserve now. So freshly squeezed, Watkinson, it's Wednesday, January 13th. All right. Time for endorsements. Tracy Fastenberg, what have you got?
3: All right. I have one that does have to do with the Mark Twain House and Museum. Um, The U.S. Mint is coming out with the Mark Twain commemorative coin. Uh, The gold ones go on sale January 14th. The silver ones January 27th. These are limited edition, highly collectible. There's a big buzz in the coin community if you're part of the coin community, um, but I'm actually going to get one for my daughter anyway, uh, usmint.gov or the Mark Twain House.org website. Um, I also want to endorse this amazing recipe I found, uh, New York Times. Well, my husband found it. It's their grain bowls. Um, it was really delicious. It took a lot of pots to make it, but it was really healthy. Um, so if you just Google New York Times grain bowl recipe, do it. Eat it. It's delicious.
1: Grain bowls. Grain bowls and coins. Filatily. All right. What have you got?
3: Okay, so in the
0: vein of Pitch Perfect, this morning I saw the delightful lip sync battle between Channing Tatum and his wife, Jenna Dewan Tatum. And just do yourself a favor and watch. I don't want to spoil it. And my other Does one. Does it do you... place
1: in like Jimmy Fallon or something? Or it's actually a show. This?
0: It's on Spike, I believe, now. Lip or... sync battle. Chrissy oh Teigen hosts it. I mean, <laughs> wow. it's uh, but you, but it'll be worth it. There's a surprise cameo that is just worth watching. And my other one for you is the new sci fi show, uh, The Expanse. Oh, Ugh. Really good. So great. I yeah, really uh, don't want to ruin it, but just watch it. There's only five episodes so far, so it's perfect time to catch up. Up And uh, watch as you go. It's fantastic.
1: It has really interesting politics. Yeah. I mean, uh, only Game of Thrones has as involved politics as The Expanse. I, I would second that emotion. Carolyn Payne.
2: I also have a uh, TV endorsement. Um, it's more more stuff to binge. Uh, you can find it on Netflix. Uh, it's called The Increasingly Poor Decisions of Todd Margaret. Now, if you haven't watched it, it uh, they have just brought it back to Independent Film Channel has done a season and they've done a really great twist. Uh, David Cross is the creator and writer of the show and he is just so funny. And th- it's, it's the kind of comedy where there is this dark side to it, which I like. And so if you watch the original series, go back, binge all that, and then uh, watch the reboot that IFC has created where they sort of take it on this, uh, th- they take the original show premise and kind of do this, um alternate universe version of it, which is a really creative
5: way to bring back a series. So I highly recommend that.
1: Quick endorsement from Guyon Wolf.
5: Yeah, I'll piggyback off of that. I I found myself missing Walter White and Skinny Pete and Badger, and my girlfriend hadn't seen Breaking Bad, so we just started watching it from the very beginning. And I, to- I just endorse going back to whatever you used to binge watch if you're not going to watch Making a Murder, <laughs> um, It's just I miss those guys and it's good to see their faces and there are some scenes I totally forgot ever happened so it's cool to go back. I, I endorse that.
1: I'm going to endorse um, two actually rather flawed movies but we're, movies maybe may worth spending some time on um, and I was sort of watching them just um, trying to knock off a couple of movies from 2015 that I missed because I'm now about to start obsessively compiling 20, 2015 movies. So one of them is called What We Do in the Shadows. It's a New Zealand in a movie. It's a comedy about vampires. Uh, it stars one of the stars of uh, Flight of the Concords. It really is maybe about a 25-minute skit stretched out into a feature-length film, uh, but it's really funny. It's, it's very funny. It's about m- uh, vampires really just trying to you know, have have a life, and they're roommates, and they have roommate problems and stuff like that. Um, and then Noah Baumbach only makes flawed movies. Uh, no, Noah Baumbach only makes movies that you can't get anyone to go with you to see. Um, so, While We're Young is the, his latest flawed movie. It stars. Uh, Ben Stiller, Adam Driver, Amanda Seyfried, and Naomi Watts. Naomi Watts is funnier than I had realized that she is. Uh, It's a movie about generational, uh, I I guess, generational dissonance. And it's also, it's a movie about people making documentaries. And that's what's really interesting. And I really want to endorse the small but wonderful performance by Charles Grodin in this movie. Charles Grodin, who I met earlier this year (laughs) and who's 80-something, he's so tremendous in this movie. I mean, he really gives it uh, a a kind of... uh, I don't know exactly. He gives it an anchor that it really desperately needs. So, I mean, it's about, uh, if it's 90 minutes long, only about an hour of that is really watchable. And then after a while, you really start to get mad at it. But um, flawed movies, particularly if you're home with a cold or some other terrible affliction, uh, they're worth seeing, too. I also want to say that uh, if you like The Nose, this year we're going to take The Nose on the road. I don't have details yet, but all of your favorite characters, like the ones who are here today, Carolyn Payne and Tracy Wu, Fastenberg and Rebecca Castellani, as many of them as we can, we're going to take them on the road to stages around the state and do live versions of what we do here on the note so watch uh, and listen for details we'll be telling you more about that as we go along all right that's all there's time for thanks to everybody who helped out today we'll be back with a scramble on monday
4: talk about Torrington, vernon danbury waterberry yeah. oliveberry woodberry hitting on new britain vernon i already said that one avon farmington yeah, 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 yeah. You yeah. want the rain?